Hey, what's everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, a podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, pray, and interpret sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm Chase Krause. And I'm Ryan Pollock. Let's dive in. Good afternoon, friends, and welcome to another episode of the podcast called Catholics with Bibles, the only podcast that helps you think and read and pray. What's our little tagline? What do we say? <laughs> read and pray with the eyes of sacred scripture. Yeah, we yeah, are yeah. the only one that does it. We just want you to know that. That's right. We're, we're trademarking it. And if anybody else claims to do this, we'll fight them in the parking lot. Do you, remember, do you remember when Taylor Swift tried to trademark uh, the phrase, this sick beat? No, as a, as a, I did no not one know had ever this. had ever done that before. Oh, because yeah, I actually remember this. This is sad. I remember the song that she does that. Like that's a you can't trademark that though. That's not a thing. <laughs> but like I guess MC Hammer tried to trademark. Uh, what's his famous thing? Oh crap! What's that song called? Hammer Time. Yeah, Hammer Time. Right there. Can't yeah, not can't touch. Can't this. touch. This. Yeah, he tried to trademark one of those things. I don't, I don't, really? I don't think it worked out for him because yeah. it's uh, you know English words and stuff. But yeah, sorry, you can't can't have that one, pal. That's right. Uh, well, yeah, super stoked for the day's podcast. We are plugging away in part six of Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, which is kind of crazy that we're already on part six. We only have like one or two two more weeks left and potentially one week, one week left with you here. Without, well, you know. have you thought about what you're going to do when I'm away? When oh, no, Ryan's I've, away, the chase will I have no play. idea. I have, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably just going to babble and I'm going to talk about the Tower of Babel. Yeah, let's we'll talk about that. No, I have no idea. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a thing though. It's gonna be okay. You can talk about how much water you drink every day. Yeah, well, hey, a, ga- be really a gallon a day for those that can't see, which is everybody, because we're not recording this on audio or a video. Um, I have a gallon of water right by me, and it has these like very passive aggressive like time markers with phrases by them. So that way, by certain times of the day, you're supposed to be, you know, at certain places. And I just I. I just filled this up, by the way. It's because that's why it's only at the eleven o'clock marker, even though it's not eleven uh-huh, o'clock. So uh-huh. Ryan, don't judge me. When do you start the twenty-four hour period? I guess is the question. Um, honestly, I just leave this at the office, and so I I just don't walk around with it everywhere. I just like when it gets empty, I just refill it, and I just drink it throughout the day. If a dog were attacking you, it might be useful. Oh yeah, it would cudgel. Be very, <laughs> I mean, this thing has girth to it. <laughs> I, I made the mistake of bringing it to a staff meeting one time, and. If, course everyone. everybody roasted you for yeah it. <laughs> everyone they were like chase really like come on yeah, pal you couldn't just bring a normal bottle of water um but anyway so we're diving into the material for today and i have no clever segue for this hebrew uh, word of the day we do a lot of hebrew lately which well is it's fun. old this is the old testament part of the book uh, presumably he will lead us into the new testament at some point but uh, i think that's the next section mainly been ot thus far yeah that's right um which is always fun but uh, the Hebrew word of the day is the word Gehenna, which actually does appear in the New Testament as well. Um, it's just transliterated into the Greek. Um, but this comes from a little bit older phrase, uh, Gehenam, which literally means the Valley of Hinnom. So the phrase is Gehenam. So Hinnom is Hinnom. So it just means Valley of Hinnom. But the reason this place is problematic and the reason Jesus says you're going to burn in the fire of Gehenna um, is because this was traditionally the place where the Anakites, so no, what's that phrase? Where the the, uh, the Anakim. Anakim. Mm-hmm. I was like, not Anakites. Mm-hmm. That didn't mm-hmm. sound right. Not Anakin Skywalker. Nope. I always want to say that. Uh, the Anakim dwell, which we talked about last week on the show. These are the giants that are descendants from like these demons spawn of people and stuff. Um, and they were their bad guys. But m- the reason this was like the fires of Gehenna, that phrase came came to be, is for a couple of reasons. One, the 
when the Jerusalem people in Judah and Jerusalem, Israelites and Judites, I guess, Judas, Jews, um, whatever you want to call them, um, they, when they fell into Baal worship, they sacrificed their children in the valley of Hinnom and Gehenna. Um, and so eventually when Jesus' day rolled around, they knew that this is the site where like, yeah, the kings sacrifice children and that's not good. Um, and so it turned into like a, a, where they burned the trash. And so there's a constant fire going in this place. And so it was the fires of Gehenna. So it very easily correlated into like the fires of hell. Yeah, yeah. You, the, you kind of like pick a particularly nasty part of the countryside in which you live and you use that as an illustration for the fires of hell, I suppose. That's I don't right. know where would we would do that if we were in Austin. Everything's Mainer. so pretty. Mainer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry if you live in Mainer. But if you don't persevere <laughs> unto the end, you too will find yourself in Mainer at the end of the age. I mean, in all fairness, that is where the dump is. I, I mean, might, it's in Mainer, it's in Mainer, I was Texas. thinking like Death Valley, California or that something like too, that. Like but just <laughs> blazing hot, nothing to eat or drink. Uh, you're all alone. You're going to die out there. Sort of or place. you go to the dump in Maynard, Texas. <laughs> it's true. I've never been to the dump, but I, I've seen the... You drive by it You every drive time by it all the time, house. and there's that giant hill yeah. um, that you write. It's not which, a hill. Which hopefully keeps... It's the Valley of in Maynard. Yeah, yeah to get to my house in Elgin, you have to drive through the Gehenna, to the, the dark night to get to the house of Elgin. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so this, this passage, this section... I guess he talks about a lot. Um, we're going to zoom in on a couple of things. Um, I thought it was, I thought it's imprudent though. He so he talks about the temple for a bit and the tabernacle in general. And I feel like a lot of people don't really know what that looked like. You know, in all practicality, they just think of like the Ark of the Covenant and they think like trade like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, I think that's basically all we think about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is the we want to zoom in on this section called Holy Ground on page two twenty two, where he's talking about the tabernacle and the construction of the temple. And he's talking about how the tabernacle, of course, was originally constructed so that God's presence could dwell permanently with the people. And the tabernacle is a tent. So when you need to move, you pack it up and you take it with you. Not, on, not like the temple, where it's just a permanent structure in Jerusalem. Yeah. But uh, let me just read this short little section of him here. The implication of God having Moses follow a divine pattern is that the tabernacle tent structure on earth was to be a copy of the heavenly tent, as in heaven, so on earth, as above, so below. We, you, you've heard it said. The heavenly tent prototype was the, of the heavens themselves, as Isaiah 40 says. In, in other words, the heavens and earth were conceived of as Yahweh's true tabernacle or temple. The heavenly dwelling place erected by the Israelites mimicked the grand habitation of the cosmos. So, the tabernacle was not only the abode of Yahweh, it was his throne room. And it was supposed to symbolize the world, like the whole universe, essentially, right? So this is actually enlightening when it comes to when you read in Matthew 20-something or another, when, it, when uh, the apocalyptic uh, uh, language of Jesus with the stars falling from the sky and all these things, um, he's talking about the temple, right? He's not talking about literally the end of time, but he's talking about, he's, he's for, uh, arguably, he's, talking about he's prophesying the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, right? Mm -hmm. Because in the Jerusalem temple, it's meant to, there's stars in the ceiling, right? There's vines and all these things because it's supposed to symbolize the whole world. So when you read Matthew, I think it's like Matthew 26 or something like that. I don't remember. Anyway, um, but it's when, if you ever get to a passage like deep in the Matthew of Jesus being like, yo, the stars are going to fall from the heaven and all these things. Um, it's in the context of out, sitting outside of the temple with his, uh, apostles or his, his disciples, and he's talking about the destruction of the temple. He says that, that you know, before the end of your lifetime, before the end of this generation, this is going to happen. And sure enough, 
40 years later, mm-hmm. Temple went bye-bye. Yeah, it's kind of funny. C.S. Lewis, for as smart as he was, it's called this the most embarrassing verse in the Bible because, of course, the end of the world didn't happen in the apostles' right. lifetime. But, uh, yeah, sort of a little funny irony there. It's like if you actually read it correctly, C.S. Lewis. No, I'm just um, one, Come on, Clive. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so the with, with the portable tabernacle, um, I think it's, I think, and, and Heiser does this well. And I think it's always, it's, imp- it's important to know, like, what are the elements, like the physical elements in the tent, right? So we have the big structure, the, the court of the tabernacle, right? Um, and that's like this, just everything that's around it, right? It's the big kind of outer tent. Um, and in that we have the, the kind of the low altar, if you will. Um, it's, sure. it's the, yeah. it's the altar where like everyone could see what was going on and what was getting slaughtered, if you will. Um, and so that's the altar. And then when you go into the smaller tent, you had to pass through a veil. And this was the holy place where only the, the high priest could go. Um, only the priestly peeps could go into the, this place. Like the common folk, um, were not allowed to enter this holy place. They weren't allowed to pass through the veil, right? If you ever heard that terminology, pass through the veil. Um, and in that, we have uh, a table where the bread of the presence was left on. So definitely some Eucharistic typology there. Um, if you want, there's a really good book by Brent Petrie. Kind yeah. Of, uh, Eucharistic roots in the Old Testament or Jewish roots of the Eucharist. Je- Jesus and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist. Yeah. That's the kind of popular version. And then there's a bigger one called uh, the Lamb's Supper, I believe. That by Scott Hahn. Oh, shucks. Uh, if you type in Brand Brand, Petri, Brand Petri yeah, you'll find it. I think yeah, it's yeah. Jesus and the Last Supper is the big treatment of it. Oh, but maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. it really goes really into depth with that. Um, but yeah, so that's the bread of the presence was held on the table in this uh, holy place. And then uh, also that's where the golden altar was. So it's like the high altar, if you will. Um, and then uh, the, uh, what's it called? The lampstand was there. So um, this is something that's throughout the entire um Bible, even in the book of Revelation, we have the, the seven gold lampstands, right? So this mm-hmm. is the lamps symbolize the presence of God. The light symbolizes the presence of God, right? Um, I don't know actually detail about the lampstand. I just know it was there and symbolized the presence of God. Well, all this stuff is so cool. Uh, in, my, uh, in my former life, in my former Protestant life, I had a very low view of like the church building itself. You mm. know what I mean? Because I had heard it said that the ecclesia just means the assembly. So sure. like the people of God can assemble and worship wherever they like, which is of course true. Um, but these first century early Jewish Christians are picking up on all this beautiful sacrament, sacramental imagery of the temple. Yeah. And of course, um, if you look at the construction of early churches, they mimic this tripartite structure. Yeah. Um, I, even St. Teresa, which is a very modern construction, has a narthex and a nave mm. and a sanctuary, like the, the Holy of Holies, as it were. Right where we have the uh, sanctuary light burning all the time right. to symbolize and inculcate uh, the presence of Jesus there sacramentally yeah. in, the, in the tabernacle. And then the most important place in this portable tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. So there was another veil that the high priest would only enter this place on the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, which was like last week. Um, it was, I forget, I think it was last Thursday, something like that, the celebration of Yom Kippur. Um, so this is when the, the high priest of that year would uh, enter the Holy of Holies and uh, in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, right? So the presence of God, the throne of God, um, the footstool of God, or you know, kind of both and. Um, and he would make atonement for his sins, his family's sins, and on behalf of the people. And they would actually like tie a rope around his ankle in case he like died and they had to pull him out, which is kind of intense. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, I, don't, I don't think there's an actual story of that in the Bible. There's people dying when they touch the Ark, yeah, but not like... 
about one of those priest. one of those popular mythologies there that yeah. is probably present in some other rabbinic writings that I can't call to mind right now. But I've heard that story before. Yeah. Probably yeah. in fifteenth Enoch. Uh, <laughs> and 16th and a half Enoch, they That's relay right. this. Yeah, they relay this story. That just shows sure. how much of Bible nerds we are, because probably nobody got that joke. <laughs> Other than us, but we're we got it. Anyway. We're the host, man. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So yeah, this is the portable tabernacle, but this gets an upgrade with Solomon. Yeah, that's right. And um, uh, Heiser doesn't spend too much time talking about Solomon, but there's that great section where they're commissioning the actual temple, and Solomon has that line about he's he's praying to God and he's saying Lord the highest heavens can't contain you much less this house that I've built um, nevertheless if you desire it your name will dwell here and Heiser talks a lot about the name of God living there so it brings up a question that you you think we're often tempted to think that ancient people were just too stupid to ask <laughs> but it's the same question that we have today if God is really immaterial if the highest heavens can cannot contain him how can we like not be talking nonsense when we say the Lord dwells in this house or the presence of God is here or something like that uh, the Old Testament scholar William Prop in his commentary on the Exodus uh, gives a great illustration for how this can be that I think modern folks can really uh, grasp onto. So he says, the presence of God, the name dwelling in the tabernacle with the people, is sort of akin to, if you think about geometry, thinking about a cylinder projected in two dimensions on a plane. So you're seeing the mouth of the cylinder, you're seeing kind of the, the circle there from where it starts, but if you're looking at it in two dimensions, you can't see how far back it extends. So mm -hmm. God's presence can be said to be experienced in there, just not in its in its fullness or completeness. It's the same way, like if you go to the beach, uh, you uh, if you go to the Gulf of Mexico and you have a good time, you have a full experience of the Gulf, even if you can only see to the end of the horizon. Unless you're in Galveston, Texas, then it's not a full yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to have to go to Padre or something <laughs> like that. Uh, <laughs> Galveston's not uh, the example kind of breaks down there. But um, you see what he's saying here, the idea that you can experience... a a part of God, um, you can experience God to the extent that you can on this side of the veil, as yeah. it were. So, yeah, no, that's awesome. That's actually a really good. Yeah, it's a really good analogy. Um, and then in the temple with Solomon too, uh, this is really when I think a lot of typology, a lot of uh, really beautiful uh, images come to mind because this is the first time the court of the Gentiles is built as well, right? So, because this is, we have to remember that when King David ruled. Uh, he expanded Israel to rule over non-Israelites, right? So, so non-Israelites who believed in Yahweh, right, would come and pay homage to King David and later Solomon, who expanded it more. And so these non-circumcised worshipers of Yahweh needed a place to worship him. And so they built a court of the Gentiles. And this is why Jesus' turning of the tables in the court of the Gentiles is so significant because this place that had once been a pilgrimage spot for people who were kind of on the thresholds or the, or the periphery of the religion were not allowed to... They had a hard time focusing with so much That's commerce a, going you, on you, out say, Could you imagine trying to... So picture going to like the mall or... I'm trying to think. If you've ever been to Europe, you know what these outside markets kind of feel the like. Bizarre. Yeah. yeah. Imagine just trying to like have a really deep, intimate moment with God. And like, People in that are situation. hawking doves yeah. and, uh, That's right. and other when, spices. Have you ever been to Rome? I've never been to so, Rome. It's on my list of places it, to go. It's awesome. But so when you go, like my wife and I, we were just newly engaged and uh, we, were, we went on a little date there. Um, as one does a little yeah, date to Rome, right? Exactly. Well, so we were with a big group, but like we broke away from the group this one night to go on a date. And, um, and we, we were like sitting outside on this beautiful Italian, like little side road. 
And sure enough, in the middle of our date, like people were trying to sell us like flowers and they come up to me like, hey, dude, like you need to buy your wife a, a flower, blah, blah, blah. blah. Yep. Like, why, why don't you buy your wife more flowers? Like literally like just while you're trying to eat. It's a great bargain. Only $50 per rose. That's right. Here. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so obviously there's, there's there's problems and Jesus addresses those problems by kicking them all out. Um, yeah. It's great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I always, I didn't want to spend too much time on, on the temple, but I think it's important to to know and to study. And I really encourage you guys. Yeah. If you Jesus and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, um, if you want a little intro, uh, I think that's so important, especially for us Catholics that realize like, we're just not, we're not making this kind of crap up. You know, (laughs) we're not just like the church didn't like just arbitrarily decide, you know what? We need to build big churches. Like we need to do X, Y, or Z, you know, it's like, we didn't just randomly name something a tabernacle. Like it's like, no, it's actually like a couple thousand years old at this point, you know, that's right. Um, but yeah, so with that, the next thing Heiser talks about, we talked about a lot, um, but the next thing we want to focus on was, uh, this idea of like ninja Jesus in the old <laughs> Testament. <laughs> he doesn't say that, yeah, that's but, great. I, yeah, but sure. I'm going to call it ninja Jesus. He calls it, he calls it divine misdirection. And this is in chapter 28. I like ninja Jesus better. Ninja Jesus is great. <laughs> we can, we can totally go for that. But Heiser, what's really important for him in this book is the idea of the mosaic. So you can't lose uh, the forest for the trees, the trees for the forest sort of a thing. In, in zooming in on a particular biblical passage, you can't lose sight of the whole, however you want to describe that. I could really get lost in that metaphor there. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, it, it, this happens a lot in the Gospels where you see the disciples always being surprised and confused and dumbfounded by things Jesus says and does. Right? They, they haven't the... Uh, they haven't the wherewithal to figure out how different passages in the Old Testament are being applied to Jesus. There's no one place in the Old Testament, for example, that says, by the way, when the Messiah comes, it's going to be literally God in fleshed, right. and he's going to die, and he's going to come back to life three right. days. Like, n- nothing's ever quite that explicit. The closest we get is Isaiah 53, but once again, the word, my, as Heiser points out, the word Messiah... Mashiach, right, isn't used. And so if you think of like the, the suffering servant, right, which we read that passage from a lot um, and during Lent, right, and during the, the, the Triduum, um, where the suffering servant is a very, like, it's very obvious that this, this, this servant of Israel will die for the sake of the people, but the word Messiah is not used. It's implicit, you can argue, but it's not directly saying Messiah, because we have to remember that in the Old Testament, Messiah was not an uncommon word. Every king was a messiah, right? Because they're anointed. It just means anointed one, right? Some prophets were messiahs if they're anointed. Mashiach, it just means anointed one. Christos in the Greek, Christ, right? Um, so I think a lot of times you read the Old Testament and it's easy to be like, man, why are these disciples just so dumb? Why don't they just get it? <laughs> and it's just like, well, it's because they literally never heard it before, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. We do have the benefit of uh, two millennia of reflection on these texts. Yep. But Heiser brings up something really interesting here as a kind of explanation for why there is no explicit description of Jesus's plans in the Old Testament. And he's not, um, maybe he's a patristic guy, I don't know, he just doesn't bring up this quotation, but he's kind of maybe accidentally alluding to a pretty famous atonement theory made popular by the uh, 4th century Bishop Gregory of Nyssa. So I'm going to read you a little section here of Heiser and then the, the Nyssa quote, and you'll, it'll, I think it'll make some sense to you. This is on 243. 
God's plan to redeem humanity, reclaim the nations, and revive Eden depended on the incarnation of the second Yahweh figure and his subsequent death and resurrection. The story of the cross is the biblical theological catalyst to God's plan for regaining all that was lost in Eden. It couldn't be emblazoned across the Old Testament in transparent statements. Why is that? Well, Heiser says this, It had to be expressed in sophisticated and cryptic ways to ensure that the power of darkness would powers of darkness would be misled, which is just super cool. And here's what Gregory of Nyssa says about that. I mean, this is Gregory's take um, in the 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 mid 300s is when Gregory is is writing. Is he a doctor of the church? No, that I'm not sure. He's a saint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's like a. Always hear I, you always see him in like biblical studies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if he's a doctor at the church. Anyway, I cannot. I cannot. It's recall. not important. It's still good. <laughs> uh, the Saint Gregory of Nyssa, perhaps doctor, says, "For since it was not in the nature of the devil to come into contact with the undiluted presence of God and to undergo His unclouded manifestation, therefore, in order to secure that the ransom on our behalf might be easily accepted by Him who required it." The deity was hidden under the veil of our nature, that so, as with ravenous fish, the hook of the deity might be gulped down along with the bait of flesh. And thus, life being introduced into the house of death, and light shining in the darkness, that which is diametrically opposed to light and life might vanish. For it is not in the nature of darkness to remain when light is present, or of death to exist when life is active. Boom! So drop the mic. Yeah, seriously, very <laughs> cool. So Heiser, I think, might be accidentally drawn, and I'm sure he's heard something like this before, but he just doesn't make any explicit quotation of Gregory of Nyssa. But to this plagiarism, idea, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to this idea that one of the reasons why all of these prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament are so obscure is such that the devil and his and his minions won't quite realize what's going on. Yeah. And so the devil, like a ravenous fish, Gregory says, glomps onto Jesus uh, in the crucifixion, not realizing that he's about to be pulled up uh, like a fish hook. We, re- we have to re- realize that uh, every single demon that exists knows the Bible better than you and me. Like, they do. Like, Satan quotes scripture to Jesus, right? Um, I forget about that all the time. I probably shouldn't forget about that all the time. Yeah, I mean, they—I mean, quite literally, they, their intellect is far beyond ours, right? Um, they're angels, fallen angels, but still angels. And so, I mean, they can quite literally recall every passage of the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually a trick of Satan, right, that he tries to do on Jesus, right? And so, you know, for this argument, basically, that Heiser makes is saying that, you know, God, knowing the, the angelic intellect, knows that Satan— sees all these prophecies and he knows that God is going to try to redeem his people and try to save his people and try to, um, find, you know, uh, bring back all the lost tribes essentially, right? Like he prophesies. And so Satan doesn't want that to happen. And so for Satan's purposes, he sees this Jesus figure, this, this, who he doesn't know who he is. And that's pretty clear in the new Testament. Um, doesn't know exactly who he is. He just knows that he might be a Messiah in the old Testament sense of the word, namely new King, and Satan doesn't want an earthly kingdom of, of Israel to be reestablished. He doesn't want Yahweh to be worshipped properly. So he's like, let me just kill this guy so it can't happen. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. Ninja Jesus comes out. Ninja Jesus. <laughs> John Wick Jesus comes to, comes to play. Uh, Jesus, of course, is not the first messianic figure in first century Judaism. Right? right. There have been lots of 
what we might call messianic pretenders, people who had a grudge against Rome for what were legitimate reasons and who had led revolts here and there against the imperial power, like, hoping to establish God's kingdom on earth. Yeah, like Jesus Bar-Jonah? No. That, that was a guy, right? I'm pretty sure that was another rebellious guy. His, his name was literally Jesus. I think it was just Bar-Jonah or bar something else that sounds right i'm Um, I'm thinking of uh the maccabeans too oh yeah them too now they didn't have any kind of delusions of grandeur they didn't think that they were literally uh the messiah's you know new kingdom on earth but this kind of stuff has precedence right behind the text of the the new testament even a couple hundred years not even a couple hundred years later 40 years later you had another guy who claimed to be the messiah and that's when we have the the jew the jewish rebellion that led to the destruction of the temple yes right right. no idea what that guy's name is yeah totally spacing um i almost said korah (laughs) that's not right Um, but no i know who you're talking about but then we also have barabbas barabbas right bar abba son of the father a revolutionary himself yeah yeah so whenever you read the passion narrative it's it depending on which gospel you read a lot of times you read thief right but in the greek it's it it can be translated thief, but revolutionary is the actual, like, literal term. A rabble right? rouser. Yeah. Yeah. He was a guy who literally, and he was a murderer. That's another word, right? Mm-hmm. But, of course, he would have been called a murderer from the Romans because if he killed a Roman soldier, sure, he was a murderer. Yeah. Right? So, and that's, and that's one of the beautiful, actually, things when you realize that um, the people chose the earthly Barabbas instead of the divine Barabba. Right. I mean, when it comes to that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah, Jesus, definitely not the only and not the first and not the last uh, messianic figure for the Jews of the time. Right. And Jesus gives himself for all the Barabbases, even you and me. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so. But yeah. So to Heiser's point, um, this is incognito God, ninja Jesus, because he realizes that his plan will be fulfilled. Um, but he can't made it. He couldn't have made it explicitly obvious. Obvious. So the disciples had never heard this before. And Heiser quotes Luke. Oh, was it Luke twenty four or something like that? When Jesus opens up the the passages of the Old Testament to them. Right? That's why Emmaus is so significant. Right. These yeah. things only make sense to them in the context of breaking bread with Jesus. Hello, more <laughs> you, more fun Eucharistic imagery there. Any non Catholics uh, here that just become Catholic already? Yeah, just, come just, on, guys, <laughs> just friggin' do it. So Lena, my two year old, learned the phrase "Come on, Dad," like <laughs> just randomly, and so not every time like anything happens, if I if I drop something or if I say, she she looks at me and says. Come on, Dad. She's two, she's two years old. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting roasted by your. I know, right, man? man. Yeah, <laughs> she's potty trained now. She's a big deal. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you might not know this, Dad, but I'm kind of a big deal. That's right. That's right. Uh, this this is all this is all really great stuff here in this divine misdirection section. I uh, I really enjoyed it a lot. This is worth a read. I think yeah. here on I'm this section. I'm finding that the deeper we go into Heiser, the less I'm mad at him. Um, I think, because I think a lot of times his logic does, like, follow. It's just some of his initial premises. I'm just like, no, 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 no. Well, the way he thinks to get at all these cool supernaturalisms, to bring all this out, is to totally reject the tradition of the church. Right, <laughs> which yeah, is, which... Which is just so goofy. I'm just like, dude, come on. <laughs> just, like, that's just not how this works. It's like, I'm going to go looking for buried treasure in the jungle, but I refuse to use a flashlight. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to go in the middle of the night, and I'm going to find cool stuff. But I refuse to use a torch or a flashlight or a map because I'm going to do it my own way. That's you know? right. Well, and that's, um, and that's the thing that we think we've talked about before. It's like a lot of the times, and like, and I, I do give them credit, like these non-Catholic theologians, biblical scholars, especially the Christian ones, because um, there are a lot of atheistic biblical theologians out there. Um, and if that's confusing to you, it's confusing to me too. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah, I have a theory on how that works. 
I mean, you 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 sort of start out wanting to be a biblical scholar, uh, maybe for what are legitimate reasons, and then you find out you just don't believe in this stuff anymore. But you got to have a grift, right? Yeah. You gotta, <laughs> like, well, I have a PhD now in something I think is kind of silly, but I need to write books and make money. That's know? right. So here is, we are. I'm gonna feed my family. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. So you have um, this these non-Catholic biblical scholars who like and are genuinely trying to search for truth and genuinely are trying to use the tools at their disposal. Which we're very uh, happy about. Right. Um, but like Dag Nabbit, they just like they they're literally starting from scratch, kinda like what Heiser's doing. And like, dude, we have two thousand years of biblical interpretation. Yeah. That you could read and like your foundation is just so much better. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like I feel almost bad for these guys. Like there's like, man, you were doing so much legwork when like all you have to do is read some like Aquinas, some well, church it, fathers. It, it might help if we compared this to any other discipline. Like, say you wanted to be some kind of world-renowned archaeologist, and you're like, and the way I'm going to do it is by never going to a dig site. Like, yeah. all the other ways that people have been digging for these things are wrong. I'm just going to walk around yeah. and start <laughs> randomly digging in a right. new place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, you might find some cool stuff that way, like, to be sure. But how much better would you be? Had you yeah. actually tried to build on on the foundation laid for you, yeah, you know? and I, and I think it's hard too because it's like if like even like I think most people don't know of like trusted resources. Like there's so much stuff out there too, right? But I wasn't planning on bringing this up today. The St. Paul Institute of Biblical Theology is pretty dope. Have you heard of them? Uh, is that a California thing? Scott Hahn thing. Scott uh, well, he's thing. on the board. Like he, it's kind of his thing. So the St. Paul Institute of Biblical Theology, um, they actually have a quarterly like journal. Um, that they release um, from a Thomistic perspective on the Bible and philosophy. And Our boy and Tommy. That's right. So you know me, I'm a, I'm a Thomist at heart, mm-hmm. so I'm always mm-hmm. going to bring up. But uh, there's so much other, there's, there are tons of Orthodox places you can go and th- that have published books, right? The, the Emmaus Institute is part of the St. Paul um, Institute as well. Uh, Emmaus has a great publication, all Orthodox stuff. The one thing I will say, unfortunately, is just because a book has the imprimatur, is that how you say that? Imprimatur. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Um, just because it has that doesn't mean it's orthodox or great, um, unfortunately. Um, but there are, do you, I mean, do you have any good places to go for like solid books? So mine's St. Paul Institute of Biblical Theology. That's like a more academic, but it's good. Well, it just depends on what like what level you want to get into. I always want to give people just like the best top shelf biblical commentaries, which are going to be hard to read. Like yeah. let's, let's make no mistake about this, but they're going to reward you in the same way that like struggling with Shakespeare is going to reward you. Right. You just need a good guide to, to get through like it. The first time you read philosophy. Yeah. You just kind of want to jump off the, the 360 bridge. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, even to this day, like when, uh, I read Aristotle, which I don't read Aristotle very often. And I've studied Aristotle formally for years. Yeah, like, sure. you know, and even now I read Aristotle. I'm like, dude, this is like chewing sawdust. It's so dry. I, <laughs> it's like, I feel the same way about our boy, Charles Taylor. Like oh, yeah. clearly just a genius uh-huh. and written some terrific stuff. And it's about as much fun as reading your TV manual, you know? Yeah. But, uh, any kind of systematic stuff. Well, yeah. even like, um, when it comes to literature, like, like brothers Karamazov. Yeah, sure. Have you read it? Yeah. I, I've tried. It's, like it's it's rough. I, I can't it's really like rough. I can't do it. Like yeah. I've I have some priest friends. I have a priest friend who literally teaches a class on it, right? Yeah. And he is he has tried so hard to talk to me and Father Andy, if you're listening, what up? Um he's tried so hard to talk me into reading it. He's given me his lectures on it and I just can't. I can't I, even audible it. I well, I was about to say I found that one much easier. I read about half of it and listened. 
to about half of it. Does it get better as you uh, go? Or is it all the same? I, I think what was difficult about it for me is that all of the characters have three or four names. <laughs> like they have their given name and then like three or four nicknames. And so it's just really hard to keep track of who people are in that book. Yeah. But, but uh, anyway, moral of the story is odds are just because it's difficult to read doesn't mean it's not fruitful or good. I'm talking to myself right now as I should read Brother K. Yeah. Brothers yeah. K. And uh, li- like any other skill that you're trying to, v- to develop, find a good tutor. Find somebody right. who can really school you in it. When you, your brain does get used to like, so now like because biblical theology was kind of my niche, if you will, like I can read a commentary and like not feel overly intimidated and not really struggle through it, you know? But you remember the first time you picked one up oh my and gosh. you're just like, oh no, I'm, <laughs> I picked the wrong line of work. That's right. Like, what did I do? Nobody prepared me for this. That's right. Uh, well, cool. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, we have, yeah, about two more weeks of Heiser. Uh, we're diving into his part seven next week on the, he calls it the kingdom already. I haven't read it yet, so I have no idea what it's about, but it's called The Kingdom already. Should be good. Um, should be great. Um, but anyway, thanks so much for tuning in this week on Catholics with Bibles. My name is Chase Krauss. I'm Ryan Pollock. We'll see you next time. God bless. All righty. Thank you so much again for joining us this week on Catholics with Bibles. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast so far. Do me a favor. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. Give us a review on like whatever you're listening to, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Give us a review. It helps people find us on the Googles better uh, because right now if you type in Catholic podcast or Catholic Bible, odds are our podcast isn't going to come up. So your reviews really help with that. So share our podcast with your friends and family. Give us a review and we'll see you next time on Catholics with Bibles. God bless.